0: Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Um, As we'll go ahead and uh, walk through the story, kind of just look at the things we do know about Judas. That's the other thing that's interesting is we're not told very much about Judas. He is We know barely more about him than we do about Thomas or some of the others that he just doesn't even talk about. And that's interesting to me because I would think in certain sort of circles and mythologies that if you were just creating a story, you you spend so much time talking about the villain. Um, He becomes a really important part of the story. And I think that the authors of the Gospels really wanted to communicate it's not about Judas. It's about Jesus. Judas did this thing, but it's really it's all about Jesus. And so they don't tell us much about Judas, but we'll look at it. We'll look at every passage um, that he's in. We won't look at all the duplicates in all of the gospels, but every sort of unique passage we'll look at. And we'll just take a, a, a second to learn what we can learn about Judas. So right off the bat, he is listed in the 12. So Matthew 10, we have that passage. If you think way back, we read this several times when we looked at the other apostles. It says, Jesus, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we have the list of apostles, and right off the bat, we know that the gospel writers are leaving no room for suspense. They're not like, we're going to find out who the villain is. I wonder who it's going to be. I wonder who's going to betray Jesus. They're just like, nope, it's this guy. And I think they do that for a couple of reasons. One is probably most of the people that were familiar with the Gospels when they were first written already knew. Right? I mean, I imagine this was not something people were unaware of. If they knew the story of Jesus at all, they knew that Judas was the betrayer. But even 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 if they didn't know, again, I think part of their point is, we don't want to leave you in suspense. That's who he is. But that's not really the most important part of the story. It's really, it's about Jesus, and that's what we want you to concentrate on, and we don't want you to think a little bit about him. In fact, even today in the teaching, as we learn about Judas, I realize that the things we learn in Judas' interaction with Jesus are more about Jesus than they're about Judas. The truth is, we don't know why Judas does anything he does. We don't know what his motivations were. We don't know why he did the things he did. We don't know why he betrayed Jesus. Occasionally, John will tell us outright some of Judas' motivations, but they're not that interesting. They just are what they are. And beyond that, it's all speculation. And you can find books which go a lot into detail about Judas, which are all speculation. (laughs) And that's okay. That's interesting. And I don't have a problem with that. But we just don't know. But what we do know is as we read about the way Jesus interacts with Judas, we see some things we don't have to speculate about. We learn more about who Jesus is. And so as we look at Judas, we're really going to learn more about Jesus. We're going to do some contrast and comparison between the two, which is probably unfair, uh, no matter how you look at it. But that's what we're going to do anyway. I think it'll be... Uh, enlightening and helpful for us all right so let's walk what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the story first then we'll go back and kind of collect the pieces so we're going to start by just going through all the pieces that we have and then we'll go back and kind of recap and summarize as we go so we have this this these verses here and then it goes on and says this it says these 12 jesus sent out with the following instructions do not go among the gentiles or enter any town of the samaritans go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now, here's the reason I read this. This is specifically connected to the 12. Remember that the word apostle means sent out. And this is probably one of the reasons that they're called the apostles. Is is because not only that they are going to be sent out later for the church, but even at this moment, Jesus is sending them out to preach the good news to the Jews. Now it is, he is going to preach it to the Gentiles. That becomes an important message as time goes on. But right now he's been clear with them to do what they would expect to do for the Messiah. But I want you to remember Judas is here. Judas is part of this because one of the things we learn about Judas as we read through his story is he was treated just like everybody else. He wasn't treated any differently than the other apostles. He didn't miss any of the major events. He didn't miss any of the major stories. And Jesus didn't withhold from him at this moment power. Do you see that? It says he gave them power, but he wasn't like, except you, Judas, you're a bad dude. He gave them all power and he sent them all out. He sent them out with authority and power and he even says to all of them, freely you have received, so freely give. And Judas is one of those who has freely received. There's not a single thing That the others received, that Judas did not receive. Keep that in mind. There's another story that comes up with Judas, and I want you to remember this that Judas received everything that the others did. But before we read this this section, I want to give you the context. So, the context what's happened again, Judas is seeing all of this. Jesus is with his apostles. This is one of his very long days. He's out preaching to a large crowd, about 5,000 people, and they run out of food or they don't have food. So Jesus performs the miracle of the bread and the fish and he hands food out to everybody and all the apostles, including Judas, see this happen. Then Jesus sends them on ahead in the boat and decides to walk across the lake on his own, passing by the boat, and they all see this, and they see him walking on the water, and Judas is in the boat, and he watches Peter get out and walk on the water, and he watches Jesus rescue Peter, and he watches that whole interaction and sees all of that, he doesn't miss any of that. Then they get to the other side, and Jesus begins to talk about manna something they understood. He begins to talk about how the the Israelites were provided manna in the desert. He begins to preach this little sermon. And then in the process of that, he says something very strange. He says, in the future, I will be your manna. So you will need to eat my body and drink my blood. And that is very troubling. The Jews, obviously, not only are they not cannibals, but they've been taught not even to drink the life's blood of animals. And here Jesus is talking about eating my body, drinking my blood. It's a very peculiar message, very peculiar teaching. And that fact, it's so weird that it leads us to these verses. In Matthew chapter 6, it says this. On hearing it, what? That you have to eat my body and drink my blood. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? They're just acknowledging to Jesus, this is rough. <laughs> who, who, can, who can take this? We don't know if we can. And aware that his disciples were grumbling about them, about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before? The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. So he's talking to, by the way, it says disciples here because there's a larger crowd. and We're going to see that in a second. Some of them are going to leave. But the apostles are here as well. But he says, you're, 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 I think part of what he's saying is you're thinking too literally. It's like you're really hung up on the flesh. There's more going on here. You're going to see me raised to heaven. So chill a little bit and don't miss the big points here. Right. But on the other hand, he says, look, your problem, the reasons it's troubling to you is because you already don't believe who I am. Some of you don't. And then it says this. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. So Jesus selected his apostles, including Judas, knowing that Judas would betray him. So not only is is Jesus giving Judas everything, but it's not like it's that he's uncertain who the betrayer will be. He knows who it is. And so even at this moment, when he hears them grumbling, he's making a reference here, Matthew is, to Judas. So I think Judas is probably one of those grumbling, right? He's one of those who's like, I don't like this message. And he's talking to the other apostles and disciples. And Jesus goes on. He says, he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the father has enabled them. Don't, don't, don't read too much into that. I think his main point is, yeah, there's going to be some things that are hard, right? And, and, and God has called you and I called you. That's what he just finished saying. I called all you, but I know that some of you don't believe. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus is starting to say weird stuff. So the people who were just there for the free food are now like, well, I don't know about this. You do not want me to, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. So Judas stays and the other 11 are there. And he says, are you wanting to go too? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the holy one of God. So Peter says, look, where, where are we going to go? Your words are weird, but what we've learned is that your words are right. I don't understand them, but we've learned you're the keys to life. You're the holy one. You're, at a minimum, the Messiah. This is a big proclamation from Jesus. And then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12? So I think this is a reference back to, unless God enables you, you can't believe. And Jesus is saying, all of you can believe. You have that ability. You've been given that. You've been called. But then he says this, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. And then in case we're not sure, Matthew says, he meant Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, who was the one of the 12 later to betray him. So Jesus knows, he looks at the 12 and he says, I chose you all, even though I know one of you will betray me and you've seen me walk on water. You've seen me feed the crowds. And yes, occasionally I'm gonna say things you aren't gonna like, that's the question. Are you gonna be like Peter and say, at this moment, like Peter and say, well, we don't understand it, but you are the holy one, so we'll go with it. There must be the words of life somehow. Or are you going to be like Judas, who is going to stand in his way, is opposed to Jesus? And so, part of what we need, what we need, part of what we see and know, which, when you put them together, you get that nice little word knee, Part of what you see and know is that Jesus knew from the beginning who Judas was, and yet He gave him all the privileges and all the opportunities He gave everyone else. When Jesus calls them friends, Judas is there. When He promises them that they will all receive a hundredfold, Judas is there. When Jesus performs miracles, Judas is there. When Jesus washes their feet, Judas is there. When Jesus loved and served and cared for Jesus, even for Judas, even knowing how ready Judas was to betray him. The fact that Jesus knows it ahead of time, I don't even think it's just sort of, I know this is ultimately where Judas will be. I think what we see in the rest of the story is that from the very beginning, Judas was uncomfortable with Jesus, and he was opposed to Jesus. And it's kind of like he's just looking for a good justification and rationale, which will fit with the rest of his worldview, something that will fit with the reason he started following Jesus in the first place, that will make it seem right for him, to betray Jesus, and I think this story, with its specific reference to Judas, is reminding us that that's where he is. Even at this moment, he hears this m- teaching from Jesus, and he's like, "You start that seed is there? I don't like this." When you think about the the slide we just left or the verse we just left, he tells them to go out and 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 preach to the people, uh, "The kingdom of heaven is near." So again, Judas. hears the gospel he hears the message he hears the same words that peter hears but because judas is sort of focused on the wrong things whatever those wrong things are he never quite accepts it and he sees the true gospel and the true nature of it over and over and over but the weird thing about judas is none of it changes him he doesn't learn any of it he seems to be so unbending that Jesus does these incredible miracles like walking on water. And Judas is like, yeah, but you said something about eating your body. And that confuses me. He just doesn't bend. We come to another story. It says six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had risen from the dead. So this is an important reference. First of all, this is not very much after it. It's pretty, pretty close to after Lazarus has been risen from the dead. And Jesus is coming to visit, maybe to see how he's doing. You know, I don't know what rising from the dead does. I don't know if you immediately feel really good or if you feel like, you know, I was dead for a while. <laughs> I feel weird. But, but six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That's an important point. Here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. I love that. It's like everybody who comes to this dinner is staring at a miracle the entire time they're there. Lazarus is here eating with us. It's crazy. It's it's unbelievable. And then it says, then Mary took a pint of pure nard an expensive perfume and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now remember washing people's feet, cleaning people's feet, putting perfume on people's feet was actually sort of a necessary activity that hosts usually did for their guests because they were walking barefoot in uh, manure filled streets. And, they, usually, they might often have a servant do it, but we don't even know if Mary and Martha and Lazarus can afford servants. Maybe they can. Some people speculate they were wealthy, but we don't know. But Mary chooses to do it. And she chooses to do it out of devotion and out of love. And it says, and so, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, again, the apostles want to make sure you don't forget that. Uh, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Just a little aside, one of the few moments we see any motivation about Judas, we do know he's a thief. John says it outright. <laughs> he's, he's the treasurer, he's the money keeper, but he's taking money out of it. Now, it's interesting to consider that most likely John is writing this in retrospect, and he did not know this at the time. Presumably none of them knew this at the time. But looking back, they're like, oh... He was taken from the till the whole time. He was their friend, I think, is what we would have seen. And, and Judas probably sounds principled at this moment. He cares about the poor. He's like, look, why aren't you guys doing this? But in retrospect, John looks back and goes, yeah, that wasn't really his motivation. <laughs> he just said it to, to look good. And you know it's true, because if Mary had used that perfume on herself, would Judas have like, been like, how dare you use that perfume on yourself? You could have sold that. What he doesn't like is the display that she's made of affection to Jesus, which is weird for an apostle. Maybe he's jealous. Maybe he's like, I should have thought of it. Maybe he is really just genuinely worried about the fact that if she had sold the perfume, he gets more money, right? He's not concerned about the poor. But leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. We're getting very close to the crucifixion. And Jesus knows that. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. He's not dismissing the poor. He's just saying, Judas and the rest of the apostles here, you want to take care of the poor? I hope you will. You'll have your whole life to do that. But I'm going to be gone in a few days. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For an account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. By the way, interesting weird tidbit. We don't hear any more about this. Do they kill Lazarus? We actually don't know. Or maybe they decided it wasn't that important after Jesus died. There's a, there's a, a number of amazing things about this story. If you really think through this story, there's a number of things in the story that are just kind of almost unbelievable about Judas, about his reaction, about his selfishness, about his greed, about his anger, uh, his misplaced anger. There's a lot here. But one of the most amazing things about this is that whatever is Judas's priority and agenda, whatever his motivation is, whether it's something as simple as greed or something more nuanced politically or who knows what, what's amazing is that whatever his agenda is, he is so stuck on it. So focused on it, so keyed into it that at the moment he sits at a table with a man who's been raised back to life. The only thing he can think about is how he's not getting the money from the perfume that was just poured on Jesus. If you think about it, Mary's reaction is the most rational of anybody's, right? They're sitting in the presence of a man that Jesus raised from the dead. The most likely and reasonable, spontaneous reaction is one of worship and devotion. And Mary does it the least reasonable and spontaneous reaction is Judas's anger about a little bit of money, about some wasteful perfume. It's just such a weird perspective. And it shows, I think, that it shows Judas's ability to experience all these amazing things that Jesus did and maintain this bizarre perspective that's focused on himself and totally missing on what's happening. I mean, even if he really did think that this should have been given to the poor, most of us would at least give some allowance and can say, I can understand why Mary might do that because her brother was raised from the dead. (laughs) So she might want to give Jesus a gift. I mean, most of us would at least sort of understand where she's coming from. And instead he gets defensive and irritable. Irritable. And that's what's amazing to me is this simple emotion of irritation that we can all experience, but it's at such a weird moment the perspective to be able to ignore that Lazarus is right there and be focused on something else is just so bizarre. And not only her, but notice the end of the passage. I I have it up there, yes. Notice the end of the passage. It says, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So Judas is there, doesn't even really realize where he is. Crowds are actually pouring into the house because they want to see the miracle. They are focused on this perspective. Probably many of them, the same poor people that Judas just said he was sticking up for. So the whole world sees it, but Judas doesn't. <laughs> you know what happens right after this story? Palm Sunday, Jesus starts walking through the, and the crowds all see him and start worshiping him. In other words, everybody around Judas is starting to have the right reaction to Jesus and he's still stuck on the fact that he didn't get a few coppers from the treasury. It's just weird. He's so stubbornly unwilling to bend that he can't see that things have changed. That the arrival of Jesus changes everything. Whatever it is that he thinks is important in his life, it should have changed by now. He's unwilling to bend Again, I think he probably, because of this unwillingness to bend, probably comes across as principled and righteous, right? Someone who's unchanged by the circumstances around him. They're like, oh, he thought this was important before. He still thinks it's important. The thing that's wrong about that is that sometimes being unwilling to change by circumstances around you is principled, but more often it's simply blindness. It's simply an unwillingness to learn. It's an unteachability to say, well, things are different now than they used to be. Maybe he even appeared kind, given the rationale he puts forth here. Maybe he appeared to be kind, but in his heart, he's unyielding and he's unbending and he's impatient for his own agenda and his own needs. And because of that, he's unwilling. And because of that, he's unable to even consider Jesus's perspective or Mary's perspective or the crowds that come to the house perspective or the people singing Hosanna. You can almost see that instead of coming to their perspective, he just gets more and more annoyed by all these people doing this weird things for Jesus. But of all the people who worship Jesus, Judas has more evidence than most of those crowds. He's witnessed it all. So you can kind of see, it goes on, it says, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. I want you to notice Judas's position here. It's possible he's only doing it for money. But first of all, 30 pieces of silver is not a huge amount. And not for a guy who's stealing money from the coffers already. I mean, it's enough. But if he is doing it for money, and that's possible, this feels like a weird way to approach it. If he's doing it for money, I would think he would go to them and would say... I will do this for you if you will give me X amount of money. Instead, he goes and he says, what will you give me if I hand him over? The implication being, I'm going to hand him over anyway. Make it worth my while. It's like he knows what he wants to do. i noticed they don't approach him. They're not like, hey, we'll pay you a bunch of money. It's like he knows what he wants to do, and he's seeking permission. He's seeking some justification for it. It's like, I know I want to do this, but... At least if I get some money, that gives me a reason to do it. Because the reasons I have to do it don't quite sell me even on doing it. See, I, the reason I say this is I think it under, helps us understand a little bit about how Luke records this. So Luke says this. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. So the chief priests and the teachers, they're looking for a way to get rid of him. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and officers of the temple garden, discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Notice that part about Satan. Satan enters Judas. And there are those who might say, well, Judas is just an unlucky pawn in all this. He's just a guy who's hanging out and Satan comes and goes in him and makes him do this. I don't think that's what Luke is trying to say. See, I think what happens is scripture isn't telling us here that Judas had no choice and he was just possessed and so he did this weird thing. First of all, Luke's the only one who mentions this point, (laughs) by the way. Matthew, James, and John could have all said this also but didn't and I think it's this. The picture scripture gives us is that Judas was opposed to Jesus from the beginning and we don't know why. But he's been wanting to find a reason to betray Jesus all along. He's been looking for an opportunity all along. And so Satan comes into him not to give him the idea, not to make him do something, but to simply affirm and justify what he already wants to do, to provide Judas with the rationales and the deceptions that he needs to do what he wants. It's the same reason Judas goes to the priests and asks them to pay him. It's just, It's like he has this idea in his head of what he wants to do. And then as he goes through the the days, he's simply looking for better and better excuses to do it. And I think we can understand that because you don't have to raise your hand, but I bet you've done that yourself. Not about betraying Jesus. (laughs) I'll give you that much credit. (laughs) But don't we do that anyway anyway? Don't we think there's something we want to do, but we suspect it's not quite right. And so we begin not to look for ways to get out of it, not to look for reasons not to do it, but we actually begin to look for reasons to do it. Maybe we're wanting to yell at somebody, but we wait until they give us an excuse to do so. <laughs> Maybe we're wanting to, to, to whatever it is, you know, we're, we're, we're just, we, we see the sin, we know we want it. And instead of responding to the, the opportunities to get out, to the chances that the Lord gives us to move away, to the, to the, to the opportunities we have to share and get help, instead of that, we simply hold on to it, we nurture it, we feed it, and Satan eventually gives us enough deceptions for us to grab onto, and then other people give us enough permission that then we do it, we justify it, and then when it all falls apart, we blame the justifications. We say, well, they paid me 30 pieces of silver. Again, we don't know why. We don't know what his motivation is. Maybe it was political. Maybe it was personal. Maybe it was greed. Maybe it was jealousy. I don't think we'll ever know. But the point is that his own agenda took precedence over Jesus's perspective and agenda. And as he clinged to that, he was able to find justification to make himself feel better. Whether it's Jesus saying, eat my body and drink my blood, or it's the the chief priest saying, we'll pay you 30 pieces of silver, or it's Satan whispering in his ear, Jesus is going to mess up everything for those who are really waiting for the Messiah. You got to get rid of him. Or as some people speculate, even the idea that Jesus needs to strike in power, and the only way he'll do that is for him to be attacked. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him. The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. And when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad. And they begin to say one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Personally, I take this to mean Jesus is saying the plan will happen. Jesus will die. That has to happen. But Judas doesn't have to be the guy. Now, this is a huge huge theological debate about sovereignty and predestination and how all that works. But when I hear Jesus say, the son of man will go just as it is written, but woe to the man who betrays him. It would be better if he had not been born. I think he's saying it doesn't have to be Judas. I'll go further. I think he's giving Judas an opportunity in this conversation to change his mind. It won't change the crucifixion. Jesus is clear about that. It reminds me of the story in Esther, where Esther says, I can't go to the king to save the Jews. And Mordecai says, listen to me carefully. Do not think that if you avoid doing this, you will be saved. Mordecai says what will happen is that God's plan will still happen and that the evil will be thwarted, but you and your family will be destroyed. And it's kind of like that. Jesus will be crucified. Judas has an opportunity to make another choice. And he's had all all the privileges to make it. And I think even this conversation is that. It's interesting. He says, one of you will betray me. And they're all like, who is it? Why have this conversation? Think about that for a moment. Is this really important for the other apostles to know? No. It's really not. And even when he says, the one who dips his hand into the bowl with me will betray me, I've often thought about that. On the one hand, that seems so simple. Seems like someone at the table would have seen that happen. And would be like, oh, it's Judas. (laughs) But they didn't. Which makes me wonder if everybody didn't dip their hand into the same bowl. Because they're all sitting at the same table. And I wonder if all Jesus really means is, it's one of you. One of you intimate with me enough to dip your hand in. And, I, and it's interesting to me that it says, they're all sad. It doesn't say they're defensive. It doesn't say they're angry. They're not like, well, it's not me. They all know their own weakness. And they're like, I hope you don't mean me, Lord. Right? It's kind of interesting to me that they're kind of soft and humble about it. And then Judas, the one who b- would betray him, said, surely... You don't mean me, rabbi. Judas knows he means him, and he's the one speaking most strongly, right? That's defensiveness. (laughs) The others actually are, because they aren't going to do it, they're less defensive. And Jesus answered, You have said so. Now, this again seems to me it must be a whispered conversation. This must be one of those moments where Judas is like, Can't mean me. And Jesus is like, You said it. But I think even that you have said so. The tenor of that is, you tell me. Isn't it? It's like I didn't. I didn't say it was you. You're telling me it's you. Is it? I think it's an opportunity. I think it's a moment in which Judas can say, "Nah, change my mind. Not me." <laughs> no, it's not likely because again, he's he's built that justification in his head and his heart. But I think the opportunity is there. I think. Jesus is pushing the point, but not to force Judas to do anything, but to force him to decide. You've been hanging out with me, and yet it's been a long time since you've liked what I've been saying. You just need to decide. Where do you stand? Who are you with? When they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Interesting that this is perhaps the same message that caused Judas so much trouble. And what's interesting about it is, this is a moment for Judas to finally understand what it meant. Because he's going to explain it. He's not handing them his actual body. He's handing them bread and saying, think of this as my body, because my body will be broken for you. Think of this as my blood, because my (laughs) blood will be shed. The fact is, he is explaining what troubled Judas. If Judas really wanted to understand, this would be a moment where he could feel some peace and say, oh, oh, he was speaking a metaphor. Oh, he's going to die for us. That's weird, but it's a whole lot less weird than I thought. But because Judas is not there, probably this just inflamed him more. He's just like, oh, there he goes again. There's that weird message again right? And it's right after that. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then we have the prophecy about Peter's denial. And then we have the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is struggling and saying, not my will, but yours. Interesting. Jesus is saying, not my agenda, but yours. Judas has consistently been saying, not your agenda, but mine. And then it says, when he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12... Oh, then Jesus comes back to the apostles, and he's like, man, I'm really sad and lonely, and all I wanted you guys to do is hang out with me, and you're asleep. And trust me, I'm more tired than you are. <laughs> And it says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived, and with him a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. We're told in other gospels he kisses him on the cheek, which is a kiss of affection. That's a kiss that says, I'm your buddy, I'm your friend, I'm here with you. I don't know if Judas thinks he's fooling Jesus. The truth is, is this code so completely unnecessary? It just feels cruel. It feels like Judas is mad. There's something in here that's more than greed. He doesn't like Jesus. That's weird for us to grasp about one of the apostles, but I don't know any other way to read this because there's no reason he has to do this. He could simply point at Jesus. It's like he wants Jesus to know, I am responsible for what's about to happen, right? Right? I mean, he could have kind of stayed in the, in the shadows. He could have been like, you can't tell me. He couldn't describe who Jesus was from off in the distance and point him out that he had to walk up to Jesus and give him a kiss. It's just cruel. It's like he's flaunting his victory. And kissed him and Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. You have to hear this with pain. There's no way Jesus says this He's just been crying in the garden, sweating drops of blood. This has got to be one of those painful parts of this whole thing for him that his friend betrays him with a kiss. He's just thinking, I've never, Judas, really understand why you hate me so much because I don't hate you. Do what you came for, friend. And then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. It's Peter, by the way. We know this from another one of the Gospels. Drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. We also know from another one of the Gospels that Jesus heals the ear. So this whole transaction is funny to me because it's like Peter pulls out a sword, chops off the ear, Jesus reaches over and heals it and says, step back, and all that happens and no one even notices. Like It's like the guard probably even felt pain and then went, wait, my ear's still here. Really, that's how this whole thing reads. It's so funny to me because it's like Peter is so ineffective because Jesus made him so. He's like, you can try, Peter, but I'm not even going to let you do this. Anyway, put your sword back in its place for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets must be fulfilled. And then all the disciples deserted him and fled. A lot of good questions here. Jesus is like, what? why do you bring a troop? Have I ever done anything that would make you think I would even fight, right? And then he says, on top of that, he's like, I've been in the temples all this time. Why do you arrest me now and here? And then the other weird thing is, why don't they know who he is? Well, all I can imagine is they've never been to see him. They've never been to a sermon. They've never been to see him heal. And Jesus is, from everything we understand from Isaiah's descriptions of Jesus, very plain looking, doesn't stand out. So they did need Judas to point him out, not to kiss him. They did need Judas to point him out, but they've never actually been ever to see why people follow him. Early in the morning, all the chief priests, so then we have Jesus, he goes to the Sanhedrin. They give him a total, total uh, false and fraudulent and illegal trial, illegal by Roman standards, illegal by Jewish standards, And then Peter's denial, which we talked about with Peter. And early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to to Pilate, the governor. And when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. Oh, don't you hate when it comes back to bite you? He wants them to be responsible. He wants to blame them. Now, we can be sympathetic to his remorse, but I don't think remorse is the same as repentance. I don't think he really understands what he did. He just thinks he just thinks Jesus didn't deserve this. Now that his vengeance or jealousy or greed or whatever it is has been satisfied, and this is the way of sin also, the justifications that made sin seem so right to us do not last beyond the point of the completion of the sin. <laughs> not usually. Not usually. Sometimes. But usually after that, we're like, ugh. I just wish I hadn't done that. I still might not understand why it was wrong, but now I wish I hadn't done it. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. How weird, they paid the blood money, but they're gonna scorn the blood money. It's a little strange. It's part of the hypocrisy of the, of the chief priest that they can do with one hand, pay the blood money and with the other go, this is blood money. Yeah, it's a little weird. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. So it's a prophecy about this happening, which is great. Now, there's nothing in this story that we should be gleeful about. Not a great moment that Judas goes and hangs himself. It's just tragic. And there's things we don't understand. Why, why does did... Judas, who refused to bend or to change, or to consider his wrongness, or learn, suddenly seem overwhelmed right now. All I can think of is, again, this is how sin works. (laughs) The justification doesn't bear the fruit you thought it would bear. But notice also this. Peter also betrays Jesus. Now, they're different. I get that. But Peter betrays Jesus, and he feels remorse. And he feels repentance. And the Lord is able to bring him back. And Judas, when it comes to the moment where he feels remorse, the thing that's been his problem all along is the thing that leads him to hang himself. And it's that, the, and it's that at the bottom line, it was all about him. And he was going to fix everything. And when he realizes he didn't fix anything, everything, it never ever occurs to him that the Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead might somehow survive this whole thing. That the Jesus who fed the 5,000 might somehow be able to provide for Judas. That the Jesus who walked on the water might somehow be able to do the miraculous. And maybe the glimmer, and maybe he could have become like the other apostles who's miserable and feeling condemned and feeling ashamed, but that little tiny glimmer of hope huddles in him while he huddles in secret until Jesus returns and reaffirms him. Judas does what he does through the whole story and takes care of it himself and leaves no room for Jesus to act. And that is the tragedy. Judas leaves no room for the redemption of Jesus. So that's the story. So let's very quickly, let's recap, and then we'll do communion. I want you to see the differences between Judas and Jesus, how Judas responded, and how Jesus reacted to Judas. Number one, Judas stubbornly protected himself, his agenda, his priorities. No matter what happens in his life, he refuses to see anything differently. It's all about protecting himself. Jesus, on the other hand, stubbornly protected Judas. Do you realize how weird it is that Jesus never once said to the apostles, don't trust that Judas guy. I mean, seriously, if we knew who was going to betray us, (laughs) would we treat him like we treated all of our other friends? Of course we wouldn't. Of course we wouldn't. And yet Jesus stubbornly protects Judas at every moment until Judas reveals himself by kissing Jesus. Up to that moment, Jesus refuses to tell people, who Judas really is. That's pretty amazing because that's who Jesus is. Judas grew impatient with Jesus. One of the theories is that Judas just wanted Jesus to do this kingdom thing and he wasn't doing it. And so Judas thought, if I push him, he'll do it. That would explain his remorse when Jesus was condemned. He's like, oops, that didn't work. That's possible. But it's still his agenda, isn't it? He's like, you got to do it my way and you're not doing it my way. On the other hand, Jesus patiently offered Judas chances over and over and over. He told him he knew what he was thinking. He he explained to him what was happening. He told him about the kingdom of heaven. When Judas got upset about the perfume, he explained to Judas that he was going to die, which you would think would give Judas second thoughts about betraying him to die. He'd be like, well, it's going to happen anyway. (laughs) Judas intentionally and regularly deceived Jesus. I mean, he was stealing from the coffers the whole time. He went to betray him. This wasn't a new thing. He was betraying Jesus, deceiving Jesus from the beginning. But Jesus was transparent and open with Judas as a friend. There's a moment before his crucifixion where Jesus says to all 12 of them, I call you friends because I have shared with you everything. It's just transparent. It's just open. But Judas is not. Judas served only himself. Jesus served Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. Jesus loved Judas. Judas. Judas chose to die rather than to learn. Jesus learned to die so that you could choose. I think the thing I want you to think about is that Judas didn't understand the bread and, bread and blood thing. And, and we understand it's a metaphor for the sacrifice Jesus made for us, which is why we do communion, which is what we're going to do here in a second. We understand that it's about the fact that we need Jesus to protect us and that Jesus is the, the kind of Messiah who will do this, because even though we stubbornly protect our own agendas, Jesus is invested in protecting us, even to his death. Even though we grow impatient with God and his timetable for things, he continues to patiently offer us his love and chance after chance to embrace life in him. Even though we hide from Jesus and occasionally even embrace the deceptions of Satan to justify our sins, Jesus is transparent transparent and open and calls us his friend. Even though we struggle to serve people's interests before our own, Jesus nonetheless serves us. And he did it not only at the cross, but he does it regularly. Even though we betray Jesus when we do sin, Jesus continues to love us. And he died for us so that we can continue to choose life and to choose him. He made us new. And that's what communion is about. It's a recognition not of who we are, and that we're worthy to take communion. It's a recognition of who Jesus is. It's a recognition that Jesus looks at us as he looked at Judas, not as a disappointment and a wretch, but as someone whom he loves and who just gives chance after chance after chance to just walk with him, to trust him. There will be things Jesus will say in your life, one way or another, probably through other people, through scripture, through through gut feelings, But he's gonna someday say something to you that won't make sense. And you'll say, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And Jesus will say, it's not about who can accept it, it's about who said it. And you'll have a moment to say, where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life and you are the Holy One of God. Or to say, well, we could've used that money for the poor or something equally irrelevant. (laughs) And when you make the wrong choice, Jesus will hold out his hands and say, I love you, and I want what's best for you, and I'm offering you my body and blood not to make you uncomfortable, but to save your life, and to save your soul, and to save you. And that's why we do what we do. Let's have the worship team come up. We're going to sing some songs. We're going to take communion. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but a focus church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens, that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups, and we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at PastorMac, M-A-C underscore at Mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope there's been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.